Well, guys, it's been five weeks. I've missed being here. Um, thank you. Um, Nicole has declared me with a clean bill of health, which is akin to rub dirt on it and go back outside and play. Um, just wanted to take a second. I know she's not in here, but um, while she's not, um, just to brag on her for a second, um, you guys don't get to see all that she does um, for our family and and me. And being sick over the last five weeks, I got to witness her love and commitment for me and the rest of the family. And it's not just the work that she does, which is beyond mentioning. Um, it's how she does it in the spirit in which she does it. And the scripture says, he that findeth a wife finds favor from the Lord. And cannot tell you how absolutely favored I am and incredibly grateful. Um, and and to those of you that prayed, and I know you all did, um, thank you. Um, there was a lot of work done in my absence and a lot of folks filled in. I just want to take a second to thank everybody for that. All right. I have deliberately shorted my message this morning. I'm going to preach on primarily one word. So that we should be done in about an hour, I promise. <laughs> um, turn with me again in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 12. And let's let's ask the Lord to lead us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your goodness and your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you for the lessons that you teach us in difficult times, one of which we just sang about, that you alone are our strength. We praise you, Lord, that you have. As we heard preached last week, you have ordained the works that we do that glorify you from before the foundation of the earth. And it is you and the indwelling spirit of God that empowers your people to serve you, to walk with you, to obey you, to please you, to minister, to do everything that you have called us to do. So there is no room for any of us to boast or to brag about what we do, how we serve you but it is all of grace and all of your doing. We praise you for that this morning. We ask for your help with um, our time in your word this morning. That you would give me <clears throat> strength to faithfully and clearly teach what you've laid out for us this morning. And Father, for us as we hear that you'll show us our responsibility to obey and to follow your word. We ask for your help and your grace this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So five weeks ago, we looked at the first two verses of Revelation chapter 12. I want to just do a quick review of that this morning. I won't spend long on it. Um, what you're seeing on the screen, for those of you that are able to see it, is the seven the seven cycles outline of our study through the book of Revelation. And as you can see, 
we were right smack dab in the middle of it. And for the next three chapters, chapter 12, 13, and 14, we deal with a primarily a singular subject, and that is the conflict between two kingdoms. There are two distinct kingdoms in conflict that Scripture will highlight for us. And as part of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is his intent that the church know about this. Scripture gives us several portraits, if you will, as we go from chapter 12 to 14 to illustrate and teach essentially the same truths from different perspectives. And we started chapter 12 last time, and we looked at the woman in verses 1 and 2. There were three main takeaways from the first two verses. Excuse me. The woman is another picture of the church. And we see the church pictured in the first two verses as God sees her, not as the world sees her. The world has tons of criticism for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. She's dysfunctional. She's hypocritical. She's this, she's that. It's not how the Lord Jesus sees his church. She is authentic. Scripture says a great mega sign appeared in heaven. And the the idea of the sign is to authenticate this woman as the real church. Why is that necessary? Because there is a counterfeit church. We know about the parable of the wheat and the tares. The enemy does what? He sows seeds among the wheat, spring up to disrupt the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is growing right alongside of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the counterfeit church. And that's part of the subject matter that we'll see in chapter 13. But second Timothy chapter two, verse 19 says this, but God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from Iniquity. One of the most frightening passages in all of scripture is Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus says, as he separates the sheep from the goats, I never knew you. But he knows those who are his. She is authentic. She's otherworldly in her beauty, her position, and honor. The sign appeared in heaven, and there's a picture of the apartness. That is what the Lord has done to make her righteous. She's untouchable and she's pictured as she will be perfected in the righteousness of Christ. And then thirdly, she is patient. Verse two, scripture says she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And this is a picture that we see directly from Genesis chapter three, where the Lord promises the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And here's the key. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, who is he? Who is the seed of the woman? He, Christ, shall bruise your head. That is, it'll be a mortal wound. And you shall bruise his heel. While the church patiently waited for the first advent of the Messiah, we, 
the church now wait for the second advent of the Messiah. And as Mark put it a couple of weeks back, we're actively waiting. Excuse me. So this morning, I want to look at the second part, verse three. This is a, a secret recipe, and I will tell you about it later if you're curious. But solves the tickle in the throat. Look at verse three. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. I can see some of the little fellas perking up when I mention the word dragon. Is there anything more exciting than dragons? Probably not. But I'm not even going to talk about the dragon um, in this text this morning. We're going to get as far as the word behold. And this will be a bit of a primer as we go forward with our study. The first statement and another or a different sign appeared in heaven. So why the two signs? There are two signs that are pictured here side by side. Why do you why do you put two things next to each other? Contrast and comparison. So we're seeing a comparison and a contrast of two great signs. And as I said, this is a pronouncement of two kingdoms at odds, two parties with irreconcilable differences, two enemies at war to the death. When did that difference, that irreconcilable difference begin? I gave you a a reference just a minute ago. Genesis chapter 3, yes. Well, too, it started there. So the first sign validates the identity of the church, who she is, where she is, and what she is yet to be. I want you to see this morning that the second sign validates the arch or the primary enemy of the church. With the second sign, the source of all opposition to the church's mission is exposed. All opposition to the pronouncement of the gospel. All opposition to the making of disciples. All opposition to the unity of the body. To the perseverance of the saints. Is identified chiefly with the second sign that's pictured here in Revelation 12.3. So the question may come up to you, well, don't we have other enemies? Yes, we do. In fact, turn to Ephesians chapter 2 for just a second. Paul, in Ephesians chapter (laughs) 2, clearly lays out in the first three verses, three enemies. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, he says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following what? The course of this world. There's an enemy. Following the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? There's an enemy. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, at whom we all once lived in the passions, what? Of our flesh. Is that an enemy? So I see three here, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, 
who were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So why in Revelation chapter 12, if we have three enemies, is scripture primarily pointing us to one? Well, there is only one enemy that employs the other two. And that is those other two to destroy us. Does the flesh employ the devil? Mm -mm. Does the world employ the flesh or the devil? No, but the one enemy that employs the other two is who? Satan. So of all three enemies, there's only one that employs all the enemies of our soul to bring them to bear against us and uses those to his advantage. The Lord Jesus wants his church to understand a basic and fundamental truth. We have an enemy that is standing opposed to us. He desires to destroy us. He plots against us. He does not want our physical or spiritual best. And we must engage in battle and stand opposed to him. Say, well, why do we have to? Well, because scripture says, Ephesians 6, verse 10, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Stand against the schemes, the methods, if you will, in the Greek, the methodias. That is the wiles, the trickery, the craftiness, the deceit of the devil. Martin Luther, in that song that I think we sang today, Mighty Fortresses Are God. I was thinking about those words. For still our ancient foe does seek to work our best. Does it say that? No. He seeks to work us woe. And his craft and power are great, armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. I want you to see this morning as we begin our study here that spiritual warfare is a normal part of the everyday experience for the believer. How do we know that? Well, there are some of us that are taking the ostrich approach, if you will, by the way, I think that's a scientific myth, but it works as an analogy. We're we're in a state of bliss. We don't recognize the arch enemy of our soul. But I want you to know that spiritual warfare is a normal part of the everyday experience for the believer. And I know this because Jesus said so. Look in Matthew chapter 6. <clears throat> Jesus is teaching the disciples complete and total surrender in body in possessions, in spirit, in in Matthew chapter 6, when he talks about tithing, fasting, and prayer. And when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, 9, he says this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. By the way, verse 10 of Matthew 6 identifies the battlefield on which we wage war every day. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the battlefield every day. Because who wants to run the kingdom? Is that not the temptation 
sin, if we boil it down to what it is, is me trying to take control of the kingdom. And isn't that what Satan did? He says, give us this day our daily bread. When Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray for daily bread, what is implied by that? How often are we praying? Yes. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. <laughs> as also we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from... What is he saying there? Help bad things not to happen to me? In the Greek, there's one of two interpretations. There can be a general statement regarding evil, but there can also be a masculine identifier there for the word evil. What is Jesus saying? Deliver us from the evil one. Why do I think that's the correct interpretation? Well, because Jesus prays in the garden in John 17, 15, as he's having a very intimate conversation with the Father, I do not ask you, verse 15 of John 17, to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from what? The evil one. Jesus makes it a part of our daily consideration that we have an enemy that wants to destroy us. And there are steps and provisions, considerations that we should take on a daily basis to prepare us to meet such an enemy. And you think, well, I'm not that important. Well, I think it's fair to say that very few of us, if any of us, have ever been seen as important enough for Satan himself to wage spiritual warfare against us. But he's not by himself, is he? He's got minions. And they do his dirty work. So the word that I want to focus on in verse 3 is the word behold. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. We'll look at the rest of this verse in a couple of weeks, but... Something caught my attention about this word. Behold, what are we to do about this subject matter? And, and this is the Lord Jesus speaking to his church. What does the word behold here mean? In the Greek, it's the word edu. And it's an action verb. And it means to look, exclamation point. This is in the imperative aorist middle voice now i don't normally give you the tenses and the english breakdown of words all the time but in this case i think it's important and the reason that it's important it's given as a command that comes with it an expectation to obey so as scripture and the Lord Jesus is revealing these things to the church. He's telling the church to behold. Now, we don't talk, we don't use the word behold often in our normal vernacular. Maybe some of us do, I don't know. <laughs> but we we say look all the time, don't we? And And even if you have no intention of looking, when someone says look, 
See, look at that brother out there. See, <laughs> the temptation is to look right, but but here it's given as a command. And so, what is the what is the the picture here? There is a command that the Lord Jesus is giving to His church to look at the great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And the word um, dragon, if you break that down in the Greek, is large snake, serpent. And we'll talk about that a little bit next time. But I want to camp out here just a little bit on the word behold. Because there's some things here that we need to see. First of all, we have a biblical duty and responsibility to study and understand our enemy to deploy the armor of God and to engage the enemy. So what does that look like? So when I was 16 years old, we moved from Pennsylvania and where we lived in Pennsylvania was rural PA. It was very much as I would see Wilkes County, some cases rolling hills and some places mountains. And we moved from Pine Grove, Pennsylvania to Sampson County, North Carolina. Hot, muggy, buggy. And interestingly, the terrain is almost perfectly flat. And you can see there are fields right next to the house where we live. Brother, you've been to that house. You can see across the field for, I mean, it seems like miles and we used to sit on the front porch and watch the storms roll across the field. And it was amazing. I'll bet it's a lot like Kansas. They had <clears throat> something I will never forget. On both sides of every road, they had these deep ditches. And you're thinking, why in the world? Well, when it rains, you understand why they had deep ditches. But I can tell you, after living... Almost 20 years there. The amount of people that ended up in those ditches was amazing. If you got off the road, and there were folks that got off the road because they had help getting off the road, didn't realize where they were, and they ended up in the ditch. And I remember several not far from our house that we had to help rescue out of the ditch. <laughs> but... It was amazing to me how many people ended up in one of those two ditches. And as I think about that, when you approach the subject of spiritual warfare, there are two ditches in which we can end up in. And I call them the devil's ditches because he would love for us to be living in one of those two ditches. So what are those ditches? Well, I think the first ditch is an obsession an obsession with spiritual warfare. And there are some real-life implications to being obsessed with our enemy. One of those is, and we see this worked out in the church today, is, and we don't say this out loud, but the devil made me do it. Say, so who, who says that? Well, there is so-called Christian ministries that are actively looking to deliver Christians, not talking about unbelievers, but Christians from demonic possession 
or oppression. And it's not my intent this morning to talk about demonic possession. It is absolutely real and absolutely pertinent, and we need to be aware of it. But I will tell you this, for the believer, that the Holy Spirit indwells you, and that's what defines whether or not you are a child of God. There cannot be a coexistence with Satan and the Holy Spirit. So let's take that off the table. But the reality of it is, is when a Christian commits sin, whose responsibility is it? Mine. When I sin, it's my responsibility. But these ministries are spinoffs, if you will, and Christian Christianized spinoffs of what I would call pop Freudian psychology. I wanted to read you an, uh, just a, um, a little excerpt from Competent to Counsel. And Jay Adams, um, by the way, he's reformed. This is excellent. Cannot recommend this enough to you. Bought Mark and Jesse a copy. There's an extra copy up here if any of you are curious. But he writes about the Freudian ethic. And he says this, one achievement with which Freudianism ought to be credited is the leading part it has played in the present collapse of responsibility in in modern American society. Another is Freud's contributions to the fundamental presuppositions of the new morality. Excuse me. Freud, taking his cue from Charcot, under whom he studied in France, adopted and popularized views from human difficulties under what's called a medical model. Prior to this time, mentally ill persons were viewed as maligners rather than patients. This medical model has been widely spread in recent times, largely by propaganda using the mirror words mental illness or mental health. This model has been disseminated so successfully that most people in our society naively believe that the root causes of the difficulties to which psychiatrists address themselves are diseases and sicknesses. Harry Milt, director of public information for the National Association for Mental Health in a pamphlet entitled How to Deal with Mental Problems, provides a typical sample of this sort of propaganda when he says, quote, Sympathetic understanding, the kind you give to a person when he is sick with a physical illness, is what the mentally ill person must have. He continues, you make allowances because you know he's sick, that he can't help his sickness, that he needs your sympathy and understanding. The person with a mental problem is also sick, and most of the time he can't help it either. The idea of sickness as the cause of personal problems vitiates all notions of human responsibility. This is the crux of the matter. People no longer consider themselves responsible for what they do wrong. They claim that their problems are allogenic. That's not a skin condition. That means other engendered, outside engendered, rather than autogenic self-engendered. Now, those are fancy words to say, the devil made me do it. Or my parents. Or someone in my past. With, uh, and he explains, and I'll, I'll not read further for time, but 
with um, the explosion of um, Freudian psychology was the concept of um, spending time on the couch. And what is that time spent on the couch to do? It's to explore your history and to uncover to the best of the psychologist's ability the reasons why you are doing what you are doing. That is severely contrasted with the scripture, which deals head on. And really the point of neuthetic counseling is dealing head on with our sin problem. He goes on to talk about it further. One of the biggest reasons, you know, one of the biggest reasons why parents have given up on spanking their children. No. Whom the father loves, he what? One of the biggest reasons that Christian parents have completely, <clears throat> excuse me, given up on the on the concept of corporal punishment, according to the command of Scripture, is they don't want to give their kids a reason to be on the couch. So they bought this notion, and and you say, well, that's that, who believes that? It is so ingrained in our culture and our thought process and and it's it's garden talk when i talk about the garden of eden when satan went to adam and eve what did he do he tried to convince them that god was depriving them mm-hmm. of knowledge and then when they sinned whose fault was it, it wasn't their fault rc sproul said in in regard to these deliverance ministries, he says, quote, in our day, there has been a renewal of interest in the work of Satan. (coughs) Hollywood has given us the exorcist and the omen and a host of other films to whet our appetite for the occult. Within Christian circles, there has arisen a new concern for ministries of deliverance. Some of these deliverance ministries have developed the bizarre and radically unbiblical view of demon possession and deliverance. For example, we hear that we can recognize the departure of a demon, listen to this, from a human soul by a manifest sign that is linked to the particular point of bondage. We have people saying that the particular demons cause particular sins. There is, they say, a demon of alcohol, a demon of depression, a demon of tobacco, and so on. And I've listened to tapes from well-known deliverance ministries whose names I will not mention to protect the guilty, in which they teach the signs of departure of a demon. A sigh, for example, indicates the departure of the demon of tobacco. Since the tobacco demon enters with the inhaling of smoke, he leaves us with an audible exhale. Likewise, vomiting may be the sign of the departure of the demon of alcohol. I thought that was hangover. (laughs) Not that I speak from experience. There are demons for every conceivable sin. Not only must each one of these demons be exercised, but there are necessary procedures to keep them from returning on a daily basis. I know of no polite way to respond to this kind of teaching. It is unmitigated nonsense. Nowhere in sacred scripture is there to be found the slightest hint 
of this kind of demonic diagnosis. These teachings cross the line into the sphere of magic and result in serious harm to believers who are duped by them. (laughs) Excuse me. Sadly, too much concern with Satan and demons means, listen to this. This is a takeaway from R.C.'s statement. Sadly, too much concern with Satan and demons means that we focus less attention on Christ. That must please Satan, though it certainly is not pleasing to God. Where does Scripture say, excuse me, where does Scripture say sin comes from? You have biblical reason to believe that, brother. Yes. James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted, listen, when he is lured and enticed by what? His own lust. His own lust, his own desire. And desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Matthew 15, 18, Jesus talks about what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and defiles a person. What comes out of the heart? Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Now, I'm not saying Satan and demons do not tempt to sin. It's not what I'm saying. (laughs) But as William Gurnall, who wrote The Christian in Complete Armor, who used an illustration, and I, I, I read that book probably 20, 25 years ago, and the illustration, and it's three volumes. It's exhaustive. It's great. I highly recommend it. But the one thing that's stuck in my mind is the fact that when Satan hurls his fiery darts at the believer, what is he looking to do? He's looking to light kindling in the heart of the believer. And what is that kindling? It's our own sin. And so he throws various fiery darts at us to inflame us into sin. But guess what? The devil didn't make us do it. That's ditch number one. The second ditch I think is probably more common, which is avoidance. I don't really want to be listening to a message on spiritual warfare. That just messes with my world. I don't have time for it. I've got things to do, places to go, and people to see. I really don't want to be thinking about this. That's the other side of the road, the ditch. Avoidance. Avoiding the reality of of Satan by believing the caricature. R.C. Sproul says this, where did the idea of red flannel pitchfork bearing devil come from? You might not know this. Maybe you do. So the medieval church, when we think about caricatures of Satan, and, and these have lasted, by the way. Most people, when you talk about the devil, what do they picture? Pitchfork, you know, red suit. The roots of this grotesque caricature of Satan are found in the Middle Ages. 
It was a popular sport in medieval days to mock the devil by describing him in ludicrous terms. This was a there was a method in this madness, he says. The medieval church believed in the reality of Satan. It was aware that Satan was a fallen angel who suffered from an overdose of pride. Pride was Satan's, you could say is, Satan's supreme weakness. To resist Satan, that proud but fallen creature, required fierce combat. The combat focused on Satan's most vulnerable point, his pride. The theory was this, and by the way, I, I see no biblical precedence for this type of spiritual warfare with Satan. Um, but the theory was this, attack Satan at his point of weakness and he will flee from us. What better way to attack Satan's pride than to depict him as a cloven hoofed court jester in a red suit? How effective a weapon do you think that has been against the enemy? Because the net result of that, I, I would argue it might have been his idea. Because the net result of that has been, yes, Satan's a joke. He's just a cartoon character. There are those Christians, and I know that there are none of you that fall into this category, but there are those Christians who do not want to be bothered with this, with the thoughts of spiritual warfare. We may be heavily influenced by our naturalistic culture. What does our culture tell us? Our culture that is seeped in scientific naturalism, what does it tell us? There is a perfectly scientific explanation for everything. There's no, there's no such thing as the supernatural. Or maybe we might say, if I don't bother him, have you ever thought this? If I don't bother him, what? You won't bother me. But the long and short of it is, if I don't think about it, if I don't need to worry about it, why would Satan even care about me? That's deception. That's ditch number two. William Gurnall in The Christian in Complete Armor, and, and that volume of, of books is written on Ephesians chapter six, says this. It is single combat. Wrestling is not properly fighting against a multitude. But when it, one enemy singles out another and enters the list with him, each exerting their whole force and strength against one another as David and Goliath. Brother, you brought to mind that picture with uh, Achilles um, this morning. But the picture is this. The scripture says in Ephesians 6, what do we do in regard to spiritual warfare? When it comes to spiritual wickedness in high places, what are we doing with that? It says we do what? We wrestle. The point that William Gurnall is making, and I will paraphrase, when you wrestle, what are you doing? You're engaging one-on-one. -on -one. one of my favorite movies is The Patriot. I know you guys have probably seen that. Um one of the insane things, and you know, kings had to invent this strategy of warfare where you line up in long lines with guns <laughs> and you shoot each other. And when that person in the front line falls down, someone steps up. The guys in the back, I don't know who gets to decide who's in the back. 
But are they really part of the battle? Well, their turn might come. But it's the guys on the front line doing the fighting, aren't they? They're the ones taking the bullets. We look at spiritual warfare like that. Let the preacher engage in spiritual warfare. Let the more mature Christians battle with the devil. I'm going to stay kind of in the back. People on the front lines, they can take those flaming darts and deal with that. But Ephesians 6 uses a very important term. It says reckoning. Now, I am not in condition to wrestle anyone right this second. But when we think about wrestling, what are you doing? You are taking a one-on-one grapple. There's only one person in this room I'd probably wrestle. And he'd beat me right now, Jesse. But to wrestle... And Jesse and I have wrestled in church. I don't <laughs> recommend it. To wrestle is to do a one-on-one engagement and grapple, isn't it? That's a vastly different picture than saying, I'm on the back of the line. So I want you to understand that, that spiritual warfare, as defined by Scripture, the Apostle Paul, is wrestling. Both of the devil's ditches are biblically wrong. And when we're in either one of those ditches, we're out of balance, and it leads to serious error. And I would argue that's exactly where Satan wants us as we talk about and study spiritual warfare. J.C. Ryle said this, quote, Ignorance of the scripture is the root of all error and makes a man helpless in the hand of the devil. So how are we to think biblically? and respond biblically to the great red dragon and this subject of spiritual warfare. As we dig deeper into the study in the coming weeks, I I, I wanted to start here and just encourage us to stay out of the ditches. On one of my bookshelves at home, I have um, a section probably that wide of books on Satanism, the occult, um, demonology, and if not careful, and I warn you, there is a a natural curiosity. The word occult means what? Hidden. That which is hidden, hidden information. The draw for unbelievers into the occult is they will be given hidden knowledge that they heretofore did not have. You want to feel important. You want to feel included. When you're in the know, there's a, and Satan's so, so deceptive in that regard. Come on in. And I'll give you information you never thought you would know about. There's a natural curiosity there. And with that, I would just give a warning. We need to be careful. Number one, there's a couple things I want to point out as we finish up this very short message. Number one, we need to examine or behold our enemy through the lens of Scripture. There are lots of good books on the subject matter of spiritual warfare, but what is our text that defines what we are to do and how we are to do it? 
the scripture. Absolutely. Recognizing we are in warfare, we need biblical reconnaissance. Anything else will drive us into the ditch. But we do need to study our enemy and his character to understand his strategies because he studies us. So in our men's Bible study, and guys, I think derelict in my duties to join you, though Jesse, I heard, was doing a good job. So, um, But Spurgeon in um, Lesson 2 makes a statement regarding how Satan considers the saints. And when he uses the word considers, he's not talking about being considerate towards the saints. It's talking about how Satan scouts the saints. We have an enemy that has been around for thousands of years. He is far smarter than we are. We think we're smart. We think we're strong. No. But he says this, Satan, when he makes his investigations, and he's referring to Job here, notices all the objects of our affections. I doubt not that when he went around Job's house, he observed it as carefully as thieves do a jeweler's shop when they plan to break into it. They very cunningly take account of every door, window, and fastening. They also look at the house next door, for they may have to reach the treasure through it. Just so when the devil went round, jotting down in his mind all of Job's position, he thought to himself, quote, there are camels, there are oxen, donkeys, and the servants. Yes, I can use all of these very admirably. Then he thought, there are three daughters, there are ten sons. And they go feasting. I shall know where to catch them. And if I can blow the house down where they are feasting, that will afflict the father's mind the more severely. For he will say, oh, that they died when they had been praying rather than when they had been feasting and drinking wine. I will also put down in the inventory, says the devil, his wife. I dare say I can vex her. And accordingly, it happened that way. Nobody could have done what Job's wife did. None of his servants could have said that sad sentence so stingingly, or if she meant it very kindly, none could have said it to affect him as much, bless God and die, or as it may be read, curse God and die. Ah, Satan, you have plowed with Job's heifer, but you have not succeeded. Job's strength lies in his God, not in anything else. Perhaps the evil one even inspected Job's personal sensibilities. Think about this. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Spurgeon here hits on something that's pretty important. He said, perhaps Satan in his study of Job inspected his personal sensibilities. That is his fears. And so selected that form of bodily affliction, which he knew the most to be dreaded by Job. How would he know that? How would he know that? Now, the scripture doesn't say Job went, Satan went to God and said, can I afflict him with boils? God says you can do whatever spares life. But how did Satan decide how he was going to physically afflict Job? He studies That's the point of what Spurgeon is saying here and the point that you need to understand. You are important enough if you are a child of God for Satan to study you. 
to do reconnaissance on you, on your life. What are your weaknesses? What are the sins that trip you up? Secondly, we talk about beholding here. Instead of cultural caricatures, we need to allow Scripture to expose Satan for what he really is. Paul says regarding the super apostles in 2 Corinthians 11 who led away from the pure devotion to Christ, he said, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as what? An angel of light. Satan going to present to you and I what he really is. No, he's the father of lies. It's a murderer from the beginning. Satan does not engage us on that basis. His greatest weaponry is to defeat through deception. The last thing I want to leave you with is this thought as we close. The scripture shows us, and we will see, and part of part of what Jesus wants the church to see as we look at this great red dragon is that he is a defeated foe. Amen. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, it says this, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Listen to this. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night. And they, that is those brothers, have conquered him. How? By the blood of the Lamb by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, for you who dwell in them. Here's a comparison between the heaven dweller and the earth dweller. For you that are heaven bound, and heaven is your home, rejoice. But for those who are earth dwellers, the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because what? He knows that his time is short. Alistair Begg, who's one of my favorite contemporary preachers, I, I enjoy listening to him. <laughs> Perhaps it's his Scottish accent that I like. So if, if you hear this, hear it in a Scottish accent. He said this, I, I heard a message the other day, and this, this resonated yeah. with me. How many of you play chess? There's actually quite a few chess players in here. Good. This will hit home. What's checkmate in game? When was Satan checkmated at the cross? Alistair makes this point, and it's a great one. Satan was checkmated at the cross. His defeat was completed with the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you're playing chess and you checkmate somebody or you have them cornered, you played the game before where they still had moves that they could make back and forth from one spot to the other. And there's like 10 or 15 minutes where they refuse to acknowledge that they are defeated. What we're living in now is the mop-up of that chess game. Satan has been checkmated. The time in which we are living now is the mop-up. Satan's desperate denial of the coming reality and by the way, the scripture says plainly, he knows his wrath is great because he knows what? His time is short. His day is fast approaching. And how do we know 
that his demise is soon. How do we know that? Scripture tells us, doesn't it? How did we know that Jezebel was going to go to the dogs? Scripture said so. Satan is a defeated foe. It is incredibly important and and frankly encouraging to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he wages war against the body of Christ and there are casualties, he is a defeated foe. And he's been overcome by the blood of the lamb and his day is fast approaching. So why does any of this matter to me? Well, Jesse, if you'll go to the last slide. Here are the takeaways that I had that I'll share with you as we wrap up. Number one, we have an enemy that is standing opposed to us that desires to destroy us. By the way, what Satan means for our evil, what does God use it for our good? Amen. Absolutely. He plots against us. He does not want our physical or spiritual best, and we must engage in the battle to stand against him. That is our duty. We are in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been called as soldiers. Secondly, spiritual warfare is a normal part of the everyday experience for the believer. If you are on the back lines, you're not in the right place. Thirdly, I may not want to wrestle, but for my enemy, it's personal. I may not want to wrestle with him, but guess what? He's going to engage with us. Fourthly, we have a biblical command and responsibility to study and understand our enemy, to deploy the armor of God and engage. And fifth, Pray that God opens our eyes to understand the nature of our enemy and how we are to stand against him. Sixthly, study the word to stay out of the devil's ditches. Examine the enemy through the lens of scripture. Don't listen to what our culture tells you about spiritual warfare. If it is not subjected to the word of God, it will steer us inevitably one of those two ditches. And then lastly, and most importantly, we serve a victorious Savior who has conquered death and hell and the enemy of our souls. Satan is a defeated foe. He hates to hear that. I don't think he minds the pictures of him with a pitchfork, but man, he hates the blood of Christ. And he hates redeemed saints who have had their sins forgiven. So with that, we'll come to the Lord's table this morning. I told you it would be shorter, brother. Sorry, I'm not talking or reading or computing as fast this morning. So as we come to the table this morning, and I'll ask Mark and Jesse to come up in just a minute. (laughs) We will have some coming to the table for the first time. And that's incredibly exciting and an amazing blessing. And I was thinking about last week and and what a blessing that was um, to be part of that and seeing the Lord build his kingdom. And it dawned on me the two commandments or the two ordinances that we are commanded to partake in. There's something in common to both of them. There's a lot in common to both of them. 
but they're meant to be an encouragement to the church. There's nothing magical about baptism. We know, and we said it many, many times as a Baptist for most of my life and a thorough conviction in that position, there's nothing salvific about baptism. It does not save. There's nothing salvific about the Lord's table. It does not save. And if you're just going through the motions, by the way, you're better off having a bowl of Cheerios at home. If it if it means that little. But when we approach both through the eyes of faith, there's an incredible spiritual blessing and encouragement. And I thought about this. With both baptism and the Lord's Supper, they're both public. Have you ever thought about that? Now, we are a pretty small intimate church family. But Paul makes an interesting statement in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that word proclaim in the Greek is, is the word cat angelo. I don't expect you to remember that, but here's what the word means. It means to declare openly, to proclaim, to preach, to laud, to celebrate. So when we talk about the Lord's table, do you realize that you are part of a body in coming to the Lord's table that preaches and declares openly to everyone that witnesses it? And there are folks in here that may not yet have been born in the Spirit of God. Who are watching this. It preaches the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, just like the public dis- display of baptism does. But I find it incredibly interesting that both of those ordinances are public ordinances. And what does it say to the onlooking world? When we come to the Lord's table, it is us as a church saying, I am a sinner. I am in desperate need of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We say that as a body. There's no pride in it. There's no arrogance in it. When we come to the Lord's table, we are asking for, give us this day our daily bread. Food and drink are sustenance for our souls. And it's us relying on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and publicly celebrating that as a body. I just thought, I just wanted to share that with you as I thought about last week and then this week, how how public it is and how it's intended to demonstrate the Lord Jesus Christ.